0: Hello. Welcome to the seventh installment of Jen Waldo's novel, Snooping at Caprock. In the last reading, Sandra was the victim of an odd sort of vandalism. Spooked, she spent a couple of nights at her parents' house, only to return on Saturday morning to find that the pigs that went missing from the zoo were in her house. She also became curious about the mysterious disappearance of Paula's boss at the VMF and had an unpleasant lunch with Beth Kyle. In this reading, she'll realize that, to her detriment, she misread Beth and Tansy, seeing them as harmless victims when, in actuality, they're a dangerous pair. Guymond Chomiak and Vera Penny both come up quickly in a search, Vera only in the context of her disappearance and always mentioned in conjunction with Guymond. As Guymond was the manager of a government facility, his name pops up more often as he filed reports and presented claims to a couple of city offices, which were published in the Caprock Chronicle. Sitting at my kitchen table, laptop in front of me, I access an article from the newspaper containing a perplexed but adamant statement from Vera's husband. Vera wouldn't have just left, he said. She loves our son. There were no problems in our marriage, and she wasn't that close to her boss. In the next paragraph of the same article, there was an equally puzzled assertion from Guymond's wife. I know what people think, her statement reads, but the two of them didn't run away together. Guymond is happy. He likes our life. He loves our girls. We attend church on Sundays. He doesn't make rash decisions. Where is he? And yet, in the face of this unwavering doubt, the police did no follow-up investigation, claiming that, based on the testimony of one of their co-workers, Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny were having an affair and planning to leave their marriages. I bet I know who that co-worker was. It was pointed out to me last night at Addiction that I have no idea whether or not the supposed runaways ever contacted their families. I locate the number and addresses of the abandoned spouses intending to contact them today. I've just finished saving the information to my iPad when my phone rings. It's Mom, who doesn't greet me, but instead starts right in on her interrogation. Someone put pigs in your house? She asks. How do you know stuff so fast? I respond. Did you plant a nanny cam in here somewhere? I scan my kitchen, almost expecting to find an item that doesn't belong. Something that would conceal spy equipment. Gwendolyn Moore's daughter lives next door to Jamie Siebert, she says And Jamie Siebert is cousins with Maris Throckmorton Who's marrying Ellis Wayne Who was one of the policemen who was at your house this morning Wow, Mom, you've got yourself a whole little network And what's this about you sleeping over at our place, she wants to know Just for a few nights, I tell her But why, she asks Edgar was lethargic, I explain I thought he might be homesick Did it help? Is he better now? if she's concerned about her cat, she should stay home with him instead of flitting all over the country and pawning him off on me. But ranting at her would serve no purpose. He's fine, I tell her. He's spread across the tops of my feet, purring as though he'd liked me to pet him, but I know better. I heard Millie took some pills, she says. Poor ham. Were you in town last year when Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny presumably ran off together, I ask. What does that have to do with anything? I'm curious, I tell her. You heard what I heard, she says, and what everybody else in town heard. They were together every day. Inappropriate relationships form in the workplace all the time. Situations get intense or people get bored, so they create drama. Real life isn't a soap opera, I observe. Sometimes it is, she says. Where are you, I ask. Heading into Raleigh, North Carolina. Sounds lovely, I tell her, but not really. I offer a few excuses for cutting the call short and then say goodbye. I got cash out of the ATM yesterday, then left it in my drawer at work. The dry cleaner doesn't take credit cards for under $20, so I'll have to stop by the office before I can pick up my blouses. With a few exceptions, most medical offices in the building are closed on Saturdays, so I don't expect many cars to be in the garage, especially not on the third floor, which is the reason why Ham's and Hazel's cars stand out. They're the only two cars here. And now mine, of course. I have no idea why the two of them are in the building. It's doubtful there was some sort of dermatological emergency, and there's not any extra work that needs doing. When I left yesterday, we weren't behind in any way. Because I sometimes sense that the two of them hide things from me, my suspicion is understandable. So instead of entering overtly with rattling doorknobs and thumping footfalls, I employ stealth. I open the door slowly and sneak across the waiting room with exaggerated care. I hold my breath as I enter my area. His and her murmurs are coming from the back. The door to Ham's office is open. That's where they are. Tiptoeing around the corner, I carefully open the drawer where I left the cash. I lift the envelope out, slide it into my pocket. I have what I came for, but I can't leave. Staying to the side of the hallway, I sidle past the exam rooms, stopping just before I get to Ham's office. It's a little late to be starting over, Ham. Hazel sounds strained and sad. "'It's an opportunity,' he says, "'a nice little practice in the hill country. "'I want you to come with me.' "'I have my father to look after,' she says. "'It's time to put him in a home. "'You know it is.' "'What does Millie say?' she asks. "'I haven't talked to her about it yet,' he tells her. "'Then why are we even discussing this? "'You and I both know it's not going to happen.' "'Maybe I don't care what she thinks,' he says. "'She doesn't own me. "'It's a child's protest, opposite of the truth. "'Maybe I'll just pack up and leave.' There's a pause. I hear tip, 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 and I know Hazel is tapping her pen against something the way she does when she's feeling impatient or critical. I miss us, he says. I miss what we once had. That was so long ago, she tells him. It doesn't even seem real anymore. So if I make this move and you stay here, what will you do, he asks. Find another job? Keep watch over your father as he dies, then live in that mausoleum for the rest of your life? What do you want to hear, Ham, that I'll load up my car and follow you wherever you go? She says, why would I do that? What would there be for me in Fredericksburg that's any better or any different from what I have here? He answers with a sigh, and I back away. Ham is thinking about moving, again, five times in the last ten years. That's how often, to my knowledge, he's entertained the notion of closing everything out here and starting fresh somewhere else. There's no telling how many times before that. He's desperately unhappy, but doesn't possess the gumption to make a change. No wonder Hazel's exasperated with him. He called her in on a Saturday, expecting her to discuss seriously something that's never, ever going to happen. Guyman Chomiak left behind two daughters, aged four and six, and a wife, Catherine, who teaches second grade at Rufus King Elementary. If the scuttlebutt is to be believed, he deserted his family to live a life of passion and deceit with his assistant, Vera Penny, who had an eight-year-old son, and a husband, Dean, who's a child psychiatrist with an office on the third floor of the Baptist Hospital, which is right across the parking lot from where I work. I probably know his face. I wonder what's become of the abandoned spouses in the last year. Have they remarried? Has Catherine Chomiak been able to support herself and her two girls on her teacher's salary? Financially, she's been in limbo. No child support, no social security. Has Dean, educated in the mental health of children, been able to help his son through this devastating period? The other kids at school have probably told the little boy that his mother didn't love him enough to stay. Children can be cruel. Enough speculation. It's time to find out. Dean Penny lives in a nice part of town, as befits someone with a medical degree. Not the older, elegant neighborhood where Hazel and Mayor Cantu live, but the modern subdivision made up of 5,000-square-foot homes in quiet cul-de-sacs that are equipped with three-car garages and in-ground watering systems. Coming to a stop on the street in front of the Penny home, I study the house. Red brick, two massive stories. The frontage. A rather grand staircase leading to a sheltered porch, pillars supporting the vaulted overhang, a heavy hand-tooled front door. What do a man and a boy do in a house this big? Saturdays are a day of activity, soccer or football for the child, grocery shopping and the car wash for the dad. Ideally, I would see the two of them flowing in or out. But from this vantage point, there seems to be no activity. They're probably not even home. The place has a neglected look. The grass is brown, despite the watering system. A newspaper has yellowed on the steps. And the large planters that mark the entry to the porch stand empty. Extracting one of my contact cards and a pen from my briefcase, I take a second to write, please call me, on the back of the card. I'll stick it in the door if no one's home. I get out, lock my car, and hobble to the front door with my hand pressed to my sore side. I fear I will be tender for weeks. I press the bell, and a grand chime rings inside, echoing hollowly. After the passing of a full minute, I slide to the side to the bordering window that runs parallel to the door. Cupping my hands, I peer through the beveled glass. A boy hovers in the entry hall, framed in a doorway that leads from the foyer to the inner portion of the house. He's poised there, head tilted as he watches me. I signal him over, point to the doorknob, and make a twisting motion. He drags forward on bare feet and cracks the door open a couple of inches. I'm not supposed to open the door to strangers, he says. From the little I can see, he's a cute kid, narrow face, big eyes, brown hair, and a bowl cut. Then why did you open to me, I ask. I'm supposed to obey adults, he tells me. A bad instruction, if you ask me. That is confusing, I say. How about I tell you my name, and then I won't be a stranger. I'm Sandra Furlow. I can't ask you in, he says. Where's your dad? I want to know. At the store, he replies, I didn't want to go. He's nine years old. Isn't it against the law to leave someone that age home alone? What's your name? I ask him. Hunter, he tells me. You want to come sit out here in the sun with me for a few minutes? I invite... He opens the door further and steps outside. His jeans and sweatshirt hang on his skinny form. Moving to the top step, we sit. I gaze out at the neighborhood, gathering my thoughts. It's one of those days when the sun is bright and the sky so blue it stings to look at it. It's cool out here and the breeze is from the northwest. His bare feet are going to get pretty cold pretty quickly. "'What's your favorite subject at school?' I ask him. His answer is a shrug. "'Do you like math?' Another shrug. "'Do you play any sports?' This time, he sends me a disgusted glare that says I am boring him. This is getting me nowhere. I cannot think of a tactful way to ask what his dad thinks happened to his mom. He looks at his feet, wiggles his toes, which have already taken on a blue hue. Okay, it's been nice talking to you, I say, standing. I pull the card from my pocket and hand it to him. Do me a favor. Give this to your dad and ask him to call me. He takes the card, and I head toward my car. He remains seated. He's still sitting out there as I turn the corner. Katherine Chomiak lives in a more modest area, in the same neighborhood as Donald, two blocks over from Donald, in fact, which gives me a chance to drive by his house and see what he's up to on a Saturday afternoon. I pull up on the opposite side of the street from his house and several houses down. Wendy's Nissan is on his driveway. Donald is in the front yard with a child, a red-headed girl of about six, Both of them wield a fishing pole, he with more grace than she. He's teaching her how to cast. He throws a line, reels it in, gives her an instruction, then she does it. As far as I know, he doesn't have any children, though he might. I hate not knowing for sure. Also, why is he doing this in the front yard when it's obviously a backyard activity? Wendy comes out of the house wearing tight jeans and a bulky sweater. Swinging her big hips like she's proud of them, she crosses the lawn, leans against the fender of her car, and watches the casting lesson. But she's unable to observe passively. It's not 20 seconds before she's calling out, telling him how to do things differently, telling the child how to do it better. Her shrill, bossy voice crosses the distance between us, an assault on my ears. Donald enjoys the peace of his own company. He's used to quiet with no demands. No, I can't see him putting up with her for long. I continue on to the Chomiak address. A white accord turns into the driveway as I pull up across the street. Because I want to catch her before she goes inside, I forget about my rib injury, which means that as I hustle out of the car, I reawaken the pain. The biting agony causes me to double over. It's several seconds before I can return to an upright position. Taking careful steps, I make my way to the opposite side of the street. A woman, I assume her to be Catherine Chomiak, emerges from the front seat. 2 golden-haired girls scramble from the back. "'The three of them gather at the rear of the car "'as the trunk opens. "'They're gathering groceries to carry inside "'as I reach them. "'Hey,' I say to the woman. "'The girls squint up at me. "'Are you Catherine Chomiak? "'Have you got a minute?' The woman who straightens and turns to face me is unusually beautiful. Her brown hair is fastened at the back of her head, exposing exquisite cheekbones, translucent skin, and large hazel eyes. I mean it. She could win world competitions. Yet here she is, a single mother of two, a schoolteacher in a mid-sized town in Texas. Yes, she says, no, I don't have a minute. Her tone is abrupt as she lifts two grocery bags from the trunk, hands one to one child, the other to the other child. She gives me a once-over, then says, "'Sorry, schedule's tight today. "'Gymnastics in half an hour, which means I have a minute, but barely.'" She takes out three more bags, closes the trunk, and heads toward her front door. I follow. The girls wait on the porch. "'You're the one from the town meeting,' Catherine says as she unlocks the door." Yes, I admit, wilting as I prepare to be scolded. I've always said if I met you, I would thank you. Two years ago, you shamed the school board into hiring teachers' aides. It had been approved, it was in the budget, but nobody did anything about moving forward until you got involved. This is why I do the things I do. She makes a sweeping motion at the doorway, saying, come on in. We enter, head toward the back of the house. The three of them drop their bags on the kitchen table and the girls scurry away. We're leaving in ten minutes, she calls after them. She begins putting the groceries away. You'll tell me this is none of my business, I say, hovering just inside the kitchen. I anticipate the need for an expedient exit. I imagine you get that a lot, she says. Her hands fly and her feet are in constant motion as she stows boxed items in the cabinets, returns to the table for milk and juice, sticks them in the refrigerator. Do you think your husband ran away with Vera Penny? I ask. Her movement stops. Her shoulders sink. Her head bows as though she's in prayer. She holds the pose for a few seconds before straightening. Do you know how I get through the days, she asks, by not thinking about it, that's how. I'm sorry, I tell her. He wouldn't have left us, she says, and certainly not for Vera, who was nice enough, but they hardly knew each other. She'd only been there for a month or so, and honestly, I doubt she would have stuck it out for very long. The people who work out there aren't what you'd call refined, and it's not as if she needed the money. This is new information. I assumed Vera had been working there longer. If you're asking me what happened, she says, I have no idea. The cops are idiots. They didn't go deep enough, though they insisted they went as deep as they needed to. And you never heard from him again, I ask. Never, she says. If he'd left us, which he never ever would have done, he would have called, or at least he would have called his parents, and they never heard from him either. I thank her for her time and leave. It was nice meeting Catherine Chomiak. It was nice hearing that something I did was appreciated, and I did learn that Vera hadn't worked that long at the VMF. On the surface, this detail isn't important, but it does underline the improbability that Gaimond and Vera were passionate lovers. Also, I don't see how the releasing of elephants, monkeys, pigs, and wolves pertains to their disappearance, though the zoo and the VMF are connected through Tansy and Paula. I spend the rest of Saturday doing laundry and watching television. An early cold front blows into the area during the night. When I open my door on Sunday morning, I'm attacked by a biting north wind. I close my door, take a couple of aspirin to calm my cracked rib, and go back to my warm bed until noon. Last Sunday, I visited Manny Vasquez at his office. On the off chance that he's there again this Sunday, I decide to drop by again. I don my winter gear, down coat, knit hat, heavy gloves, Towering from the nasty wind as I make my way to my detached garage, I fear that, starting right now, I'm going to be cold all winter. Just like last week, Manny's red truck is in front of his office. I pull in beside it. I have taken to carrying my briefcase instead of my purse, which at times can be convenient, though under certain circumstances has proven to be a hassle. For instance, ordinarily I'd grab my purse as I leave the car, but the briefcase is too cumbersome. It's also too lovely to leave sitting on the passenger seat in this questionable area, so I tuck it behind the driver's seat, covering it with the blanket I leave in the back. Hey, little Miss Pushy, he says after I struggle to close the door against the forceful wind. Hunched behind his desk, he glares at the outdated computer. Last week, I say, just after I left, Paula Mercer came by here and you gave her money. Turning the guest chair toward him, flinching at the pain in my side caused by the movement, I carefully sit. I want to know why. One of these days, you're going to get in real trouble, he cautions. You don't want to be messing around with Paula. His warning is a little late, not that I would have heeded it. I rub my sore ribs. "'Do the two of you have some kind of backdoor thing going with the city vehicles?' I ask. "'I can think of a couple of ways a partnership between his construction company and the city vehicle compound "'could be mutually lucrative, and it would explain the money handover.' "'Nah, nothing like that. I owed her. That's all.' "'He's wearing the same sour expression he had last week when he slipped her the money. "'Whatever he paid her for, he's not happy about it.' "'Owed her for what?' I ask. "'It involves a family situation, and that's all I'm saying,' he tells me.' This is a new path to explore, and even though it doesn't have a thing to do with the zoo or the VMF, I cannot stop myself from taking the detour. What kind of situation? I ask. Missy, I've said all I'm going to say. You need to be on your way. Come on, Manny, I coax. You know I go crazy if I don't have the details. What do I care if you go crazy? He asks. My family's private business is off limits to your snooping. I come to my feet, politely thank him for his time, and leave. How could Paula be involved with Manny and his family? I hate unanswered questions. Aimlessly, I drive from the business park. Sunday afternoons can be boring if a person doesn't like to watch sports on TV. Mentally, I examine and discard several ideas. I could call my friend Myra and see if she needs me to take her baby Benjamin for a couple of hours. I could drive by Wendy's house to see if she's a responsible homeowner or an indolent one. I suspect indolent. But I'm not in the mood to diaper a baby or augment the list of Wendy's shortcomings. What I want to do is to poke around at the zoo. The only way to have transferred Hector Vasquez's bones into the wolf bin would have been over the fence from some sort of elevated conveyance. If those ladder trucks from the VMF had come in through the back gate, there would be evidence of it, tracks in the dirt, broken branches, flattened grass. And if they'd been driving over the footpaths, there would be cracked cement or crushed curbs, but the zoo is locked up tight. Tansy's got a key, though. I turn my car towards her house. Checking to make sure that Paula's car is not in the driveway, I park on the street, approach, and ring the bell. Tansy opens the door only a crack. Please let me in, I plead. I emphasize my discomfort by dancing from foot to foot to keep warm. It's freezing out here. She opens it barely wide enough for me to squeeze through. The wind whistles as she closes the door behind me. The cramped entry hall shows signs of neglect. The side table, which held only the odds and ends bowl, and the vase last time I was here is now cluttered with circulars, a couple of water glasses, pens, and rubber bands. It's obvious from the overloaded coat rack that nothing has been hung up or put away since before Tansy was hospitalized. "'What are you doing here?' she asks." She's wearing gray sweatpants and a red sweatshirt, with a white thermal shirt underneath. The cast on her lower arm is looking greasy and frayed. I bet it's inconvenient. I study her face. Droopy and gray, she looks exhausted. The stitched gash from brow to hairline has faded and lost some of its swelling. I think of my scar, but resist touching it. At least it's concealed by my hair. Tansy is going to look like a pirate for the rest of her life. "'Are you healing up okay?' I ask. "'You need me to get you something? Food? Toilet paper?' "'If I need something, I'll get it without any help from you,' she responds. "'Why do you keep showing up at my door?' "'Where's Paula?' I want to know. "'Someplace not here,' she tells me. "'Who's been taking care of the zoo this week?' I try to step further into the house, but she blocks the doorway leading to the living room. "'Some maintenance guy was going in,' she says. "'I was there yesterday, getting the pigs settled. "'I'll be back on the job full-time tomorrow.' Are the police still looking over your shoulder? I ask. No, she says, but they said they'd be dropping by, checking on me. How is this any of your damn business? Does your going back to work mean they're going to reopen the zoo? I wonder why they're cutting back on her supervision. Have the circumstances changed? Maybe in a week or so, she says. It's understaffed, so they're interviewing. That's what they say, anyway. She's thinking the same thing I am, that saying and doing are different things. If the town council is involved, it could be years before they hire another zookeeper. "'Are you thinking about going over there today?' I ask. "'It's freezing outside,' she says. "'So? Bundle up. Those animals are your responsibility. "'Don't you need to make sure they're warm enough?' She opens her mouth to protest, then closes it again, sending a look of yearning toward her cozy living room. But her will is weak compared to mine, and she knows it. Also, she spent her whole existence trying to please whoever's in the room. And right now, that's me. "'Get your hat and coat,' I tell her. "'I'll drive.' "'Separate cars,' she insists. "'I heard about your habit of stranding people.' I'm reluctant to let her out of my sight, but if her driving herself will get her there, I can live with it. It's a relief that she's being so accommodating. I expected to have to work harder, but here she is, after hardly any effort on my part, tying on her work boots and pulling on a sweater, then another sweater, then a coat, and finally, gloves. Because of the cast on her right wrist, the gloves give her a little trouble, but after pulling and stretching, she manages. She grabs a pair of earmuffs, fits them over her head, and digs out her keys and purse from the table. I return to my car and watch in my rearview mirror as she reverses from her driveway. Then I fall in behind her, trailing her all the way to the zoo. On a warmer Sunday, the park would be packed. Today, the only two vehicles in the parking lot belong to us. Everybody else in town is huddled under blankets in front of their televisions. God, it's cold out here, she says as she merges from her Toyota. She's wearing so many layers that she looks like a big ball with arms and a face. I give a thought to my phone, which is in my briefcase, but this won't take long, so I lock up and leave my things where they are. She pulls out a ring of keys as we approach the gate and then has difficulty with the lock because her gloved fingers are clumsy. The wind is relentless. Though I'm wearing a wool cap, I envy her earmuffs. She slides the gate open and we're in. What's the first thing you usually do when you get here, I ask. Who wouldn't be curious about a zookeeper's work day? Come on back, she invites. I'll walk you through it. She closes the gate behind us and takes the lead, past the duck pond, around the barn animals, between the monkeys and kangaroos. I scan my surroundings, studying the grounds for any sign that trucks have been through. Nothing jumps out. Before we get to the bears, she takes an unexpected left, following a walkway bordered by two high-reaching cement walls. Where are we going? I ask. I never noticed this path before. Shortcut, she tells me. The path descends until we come to a door, which she opens with a key. We step into an underground passageway. The air is stale and cool with the underlying odor of dusty urine. The only illumination comes from a large window through which ambient light, undulating and mysterious, casts moving beams. I step further into the tight chamber. The window offers an underwater view. There's a click as Tansy pulls the door shut. Startled to realize that we're closed in here, I look around. Oh, we're not closed in. There's a door leading out on the other side. Cool, I say, a hidden walk-through. It was a fun little viewing tunnel before it was closed a couple of years ago, she tells me, popular with the kids. Why was it closed? I ask. For some reason, people really liked to trash it. It wasn't worth the effort. What enclosure am I looking into? I step close to the window and peer in. The Bears swimming area, she tells me. Turning my glance upward, I see a vaguely defined brown form swaying above the waterline. They get hungry this time of year, she says. They'll be hibernating pretty soon. The window is crusted with dust. The sides of the pool are green with algae, and the water is murky. She stands behind me. In the reflection of the glass, I see her lift an object, square, a block of some sort, above her head, high, with both hands. Before I can turn, scream, or protect myself in any way, I feel pain on the crown of my head, and all goes black. When I regain consciousness, I'm in the same underground passageway lying on my side on the cold cement floor. Pain reaches from the top of my head all the way down into the back of my neck. The only illumination comes from the underwater window. The slant of the light hasn't changed, which tells me that very little time has passed. I can't sense my extremities. I'm numb from the neck down. My head feels heavy. I can feel the ba-boom, ba-boom, boom of my heart behind my eyes. I lie there floating inside my mind until a niggling awareness reminds me that it's freezing in here. I know I should get up, but when I move, agony screams through my head. Taking care not to jar, I lift my gloved hand and remove my cap. Stripping the glove off, I carefully explore my head, a knot the size of a large marble, tender. Pulling my hand away, holding it up so the light catches my fingertips, I'm relieved to see there's no blood. But my hand looks foreign and fuzzy. I close my eyes, breathe deeply, tell myself that I'm going to have to focus. My first lucid realization is that Tansy, the bitch, smashed something right down onto my head. My second thought is that it could have been so much worse. I'd been wearing a nice, thick-knit cap that cushioned the blow. I close my eyes against the pain that I know is coming, then push myself up slowly, careful to avoid jerky movements. Shifting into a sitting position, I lean against the wall, curl my knees to my chest, and try not to shiver. I screwed up back at Tansy's house. Her will is weak compared to mine. This absurdly condescending boast actually ran through my head. How could I have been so arrogant, so blinded by my belief in my own power? "'Stupid me, so full of myself, "'so accepting of how easily she agreed to bring me here. "'I was pleased that she was being so accommodating. "'How could I have been so gullible? "'The rise to my feet is accomplished slowly. "'Legs under me, I use the wall for support, "'gaining balance carefully. "'As I reach an upright position, my head clears. "'The pain is subsiding, becoming manageable. "'I blink a few times, move my head from side to side. "'I test my side, still tender, but definitely not worse. "'I'm going to be fine.' My first step is a bit shaky, but the second step is easier. I shuffle to the door we entered through. It's locked. Opposite door, also locked. I expected no less. I'm concerned about the cold. I need to keep warm, and the only way to do that is to keep moving. So I walk from one end of the chamber to the other, a continuous, gentle stride, berating myself with every step. What are phones for, if not to contact someone when there's a need? Yet what do I do? I lift mine in the car. About 20 minutes later, I hear the scratching of the key in the lock. The door we entered through opens and Tansy's round face, oddly lacking rancor, pops through. And, to my surprise, it's not Paula who follows her in. It's the other point of their triangle, Beth. They're in the middle of a conversation, and while, considering the circumstances, I expect the topic under discussion to be me, that's clearly not the case. It would have been nice if he could have gone on his vacation, Tansy's saying. I'm sad he had to die, that's all. I would have liked to have gone to the funeral. Beth steps away from her, crosses to me. Her furious expression causes me to cringe and retreat a step. She pursues, lifts her hand, and slaps me so hard across the left cheek that I'm knocked back into the wall. Stunned, I slide to the floor. Ow! I hold my hand to my face. What's that for? You're so small, it's just ridiculous, she tells me. Next time you'll think twice before leaving me without a ride. Behind her, Tansy smirks. Beth returns her attention to Tansy and their conversation. You complained about him all the time, she says. You said he was a drunk, and he bossed you around every second. And now you're in charge out here, just like now Paula's in charge where she is. You're welcome. Reluctant to draw their attention, I remain quiet on the floor. Looking from one to the other, I interpret their conversation. Are they talking about Hector? I think so. And what about Paula being in charge? She's in charge of the VMF. You ready? Beth asks Tansy. Yeah, let's get this done. They both turn toward where I'm huddled on the floor, advancing with hands opened and reaching. Their glittering eyes reveal malicious intent. No! I wiggle, duck, and scoot, making it impossible for them to take hold. What are you doing? They achieve firm grips, digging into my upper arms and yanking me to my feet. I kick out, catching Tansy's shin with the toe of my boot. Yow! She shrieks, releasing me and bending to rub her leg. Hurt later, Beth tells her, refusing to let go of my shoulder. I kick at Tansy again, grazing her head. Then, with my free hand, I make a fist and roundhouse it toward Beth's face. But Beth's ready. She pulls her chin back before I can land a punch. Taking me by the throat, she pushes me up against the wall, trapping me there, choking me. Tansy straightens and reclaims my arm. Don't you want to get out of here? She asks. We're trying to help you, that's all. Beth's tone is reasonable as she releases my throat. I take a big gulp of air. Why are you fighting? She asks. I don't like to be manhandled, I tell her. "'Manhandled?' she chuckles. "'That's a good one. You hear that, Tansy? Manhandled.' "'With them rising like mountains on either side of me, "'holding me firmly by the upper arms, "'they march me through the door and up the walkway. "'And we're back in the main portion of the zoo. "'Where are you taking me?' "'We pass the monkeys. "'The poor beasts huddle in their small shelter. "'They look hopelessly cold. "'You're so curious about Guy and Vera. "'We're taking you to them.' "'Or maybe not,' Tansy says. "'The bears get so hungry this time of year.' This is horrifying. Would they really throw me in the bear enclosure? Beth turns in that direction, hauling me along. Think, think, think. Two lumpish women, one of them recovering from injuries, both out of shape, breathing hard from the small exertion of getting me from one place to another. If I could get them to loosen their grips for a second, I could easily outrun both of them. Just a minute, I say, dragging my feet, relaxing my weight against them as I swoon. I'm going to throw up. I arch forward, suck in an exaggerated inhalation, and fake a couple of heaves. Fearful of my barf, they release my arms and retreat to a safe distance, and I sprint away. They follow, hollering and huffing, but there's no way they can catch me. Beth said my size was ridiculous, but it's because I'm so small that I'm so fast. Ha! extracting my key from my pocket as I run. I'm reversing out of the parking place before they've even cleared the gate. I drive around town while I mull. The fast dash reawakened the pain in my side, so I rub it and take shallow breaths, which seems to help. For some reason, a lot of trash has collected along the east wall of Westfield's Lutheran Church. And on Goodnight Drive, Bart's Steakhouse that closed last month has reopened as the All-American Buffet. I'm befuddled and slow. Would Beth and Tansy really have fed me to the bears, right there at the zoo on a Sunday afternoon? At one point, Beth said they were going to take me to Guy and Vera, which I take to mean they were going to show me the bodies, and I'm pretty sure she was intending to add my corpse to a collection somewhere. I'm surprised that Beth, whom I've always viewed as lacking in volition and focus, is so creepy and evil. She's always right behind Paula. She quotes Paula's opinions. She follows Paula's orders. But this Paula worship appears to be an illusion, an aspect created by her in order to mislead. I have been played. Beth is a schemer and an instigator, not a minion. And where do Tansy's loyalties lie? She seems to obey whoever's currently bossing her around. That bit of conversation between Beth and Tansy was revealing. Tansy whining about Hector's death. Beth reminding her that his death gave Tansy power. Paula wasn't with them today. What does this mean about her involvement? Just because she's unpleasant and rough doesn't mean she's guilty. If she were anybody else, I'd find her and get some answers to a few questions. But Paula scares me. And now, so do Beth and Tansy. My phone rings. It's in the back. Pulling into the Walgreens parking lot, I twist, reach, and extract my lovely briefcase from behind my seat. The call cuts off before I can dig out my phone. Whoever it is, they didn't leave a message, and I don't recognize the number. I return the call. Hello? It's a man's voice. You just called me? I say. Sandra Furlow? You left your card with my son. Is this Dean Penny? Yes, he answers. Are you at home? I ask. Can I come by? "'What's this about?' he wants to know. "'I can be there in ten minutes,' I tell him, ending the call and heading toward his side of town. He meets me at the door, stepping onto the porch as he pulls on his coat. On his feet, he wears only socks. "'It's freezing out here,' I say. As a hint, it's not subtle. I adjust my hat over my ears and tuck my gloved hands into my armpits, trying to hold on to the heat from the car. He's blocking entry to his warm house. The penetrating wind makes me shiver.' I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you're here, he tells me, nose high, sniffing as though he thinks he'll learn about me from my scent. He looks like his son, thin, large brown eyes, brown hair. Above average height, 6'4 or more, though stooped. I'm curious about what's going on at the VMF in the zoo, I tell him. The VMF? Where my wife worked? Do you think Vera ran off with her boss? I ask. He cringes when he hears his wife's name. I didn't at first, he tells me, but now I don't know. It's been a year with no word. Doubt slips in. How is this your concern? I try to get to the bottom of things, I reply. That's more than the police ever did, he says. Was Vera happy? Did she like being a mother? Did you have a good marriage? Of course she was happy, he answers. When Hunter got to be school age, she got restless staying at home. She decided to try something new. That's why she went to work out there. "'Did she get along with her co-workers?' I ask. "'Sure,' he replies. "'She liked people. She was easygoing. "'Not dramatic or petty about things. Sensible. "'She sounds like someone I would have liked. "'Did she ever mention Paula Mercer? "'The woman who claimed they were having an affair. "'Once Vera called Paula a scary lesbian, "'but she said it in a joking way. "'Oh, she wasn't joking,' I tell him. "'What are your thoughts?' he asks. "'Do you think Paula Mercer had something to do "'with their disappearance?' "'It's a possibility,' I respond." "'You mentioned the zoo,' he reminds. "'What does this have to do with animals getting out of their cages?' "'This isn't just about animals,' I comment. "'It's about Hector Vesquez, too. "'You think Vera and Guymond were fed to the wolves like that zookeeper?' he asks. "'I doubt it,' I say. "'Surely the police have searched the wolf area. "'If they'd found any remains other than Hector's, we'd know about it.' "'But this is the Caprock Police Department we're talking about. "'Incompetent, unimaginative, lazy. "'Why are you involved in this?' He is genuinely puzzled by my presence. Why do you even care? If I don't look into it, I say, who will? I leave him standing there, shivering on his porch. Silly man. His wife's been gone for a year, and he never thought to ask any questions or do any investigating on his own. As soon as I'm settled into the warmth of my car, I call Joe Epps. It's my day off, he begins. A television sports crowd cheers in the background. Why are you calling me? "'Was there ever a search for bones belonging to anyone other than Hector?' I ask. "'Of course,' he answers. "'Do you think we're idiots?' "'And did you find any?' "'If we did,' he says, "'why would I tell you?' "'But we didn't.' "'Remember when Guy Chomiac and Vera Penny disappeared last year?' I ask. "'Do you really think they ran off together?' "'Oh, so that's your theory,' he realizes, "'that their bodies were fed to the wolves, just like Hector Vasquez.' "'But you just said that wasn't the case,' I say." Their co-workers at the VMF said they were having an affair, he tells me. It happens. And that was the extent of your investigation? I want to know. There was nothing to investigate, period. He sighs like I've exhausted him. Couples go off together to start new lives all the time. We tend not to assume a murder unless we have bodies, or at least evidence of foul play. Like lots of blood? I ask. Like that, yeah. Okay, I say. Enjoy your sports game on television. I end the call. He doesn't think people missing is evidence of foul play. Dean Penny is still standing on his porch, hugging himself against the cold and watching me. I wave and drive away. Amoral, violent, and unpredictable. Beth and Tansy might come after me to finish what they started, or they might not. Also, and this is just me being curious, who's beating up whom in their threesome? The sharp pain in my lower ribs is proof that Paula uses physical force, and the tender knot at my crown indicates that Tansy, too, has a brutal side. I assumed it was Paula who put Tansy in the hospital, but now I know it could have been Beth. Does it matter? What does matter is that I don't feel safe at home, and I fear my parents' house is too obvious. Taking a circle around the block to make sure the area is clear, I stop by my house, quickly pack the few items I'll need between now and tomorrow, put Edgar in his carrier along with his food and cat box, and drive to the Candle Rock Inn on the highway. From the outside, the Candle Rock is a long two-story building punctuated by small, evenly spaced windows. Gray and uninspiring, it blends into the commercial environs bordering the highway that slices through our town. Parking in front, it takes me less than two minutes to check in. Thanking the clerk at the desk, I return to my car, drive around to the side, take the outside stairs to the second floor, and tromp toward the back of the building to 2.52. It takes three trips to get my stuff and all the cat paraphernalia to the room. The secure anonymity the Candle Rock provides is costing me 49 bucks for the night. After getting Edgar settled into our temporary nest, I bundle up once more and head back out. It's only 4 o'clock and there's one more errand I'd like to fit into my Sunday. Knowing that the VMF will be locked up tight, my plan is to climb the fence. An imprudent strategy. For one thing, my aching side makes a vertical scramble impossible. And for another, once I get up there, I'd be required to navigate my way over the closely set spikes that run along the upper edge. Another deterrent, it's cold and windy, and I'm wearing a couple of awkward layers and cumbersome gloves. I feel too visible. I can't leave my recognizable car right here at the front, an announcement to the world that I'm once again where I don't belong. On the other hand, it's not like there's any traffic. As I'm pondering how to gain access to the facility, I glance in the rearview mirror. Is that an entry into the back of the park that I'm seeing? Two parallel tracks are barely discernible, formed by flattened brown grass that the marks disappear around a bend. The first order of business is to conceal my car. A road, if it can be called that, begins at the corner of the compound and goes right on back, paralleling the fence. Pitted and overgrown, it's more a rugged trail than a route meant for motorized vehicles. My goal isn't to go far, just to get my CRV out of sight. So I bump over the front sidewalk and onto the path, cringing at every knock and thump. I roll up to a rough stop about 40 yards in. This time, I remember my phone. I tuck it into my pocket and get out of the car and, returning to the front, cross the street and enter the park. The two lines in the dried grass indicate that heavy vehicles have passed this way. This area is untended and the grass is long and weedy, except where it's been pressed down by tires. The icy wind pushes at my back, making me grateful for my coat. Adjusting my hat to cover more of my ears, I follow the tracks which take me through a low-lying area that, though dry now, at one point was swampy, rendering several impressions. The prints are deep, with jagged peaks and deeply scarred ruts. Some very large trucks have passed this way. This is the route that would have been used in returning the elephants. There are also smaller tracks, made by a lighter vehicle, the front wheels of which present mismatched treads. Working with difficulty because of my gloves, I take a couple of pictures. Continuing on, the ruts lead me right to the rear entry of the zoo. I stare at the big gate. Just a couple of hours ago, I took a blow to the head in there. What did Tansy and Beth do after I got away? Did they go to my house? Are they looking for me somewhere? Or are they rolling around on the couch in front of Tansy's television? Retracing my steps, I return to the VMF and, hiking the rough terrain, pass my car as I follow the boundary around to the back. A gate similar to the one in front is set into the fence. This gate, too, is secured with a padlock and heavy chain. Only, unlike in the front, there's a gap where a skinny person like me can just slip right on through, which I do. My first objective is to prove to myself that I'm right. I head to the southeast corner of the lot to the ladder trucks. My theory is that one of these was used to transport the dead body of Hector Vasquez in darkness, maneuvering between the other vehicles out the front gate and across the park to the rear entrance of the zoo. His body was dumped over the fence from an elevated basket into the wolf enclosure. That's the only way somebody could have gotten the body in there without being attacked themselves. I guess one person could have done it, but much easier and faster with one person in the truck, the other in the basket, to flip the body out. Carrying this further, I speculate that the wolves were set free in the same way their enclosure unlocked from the safety of elevation. There are three ladder trucks, two white, one beige. It's a simple task to crouch down, examine the tires of the vehicles, and match the disparate prints on my phone with the corresponding treads of the beige truck. I take corresponding pictures of the tires. None of this is scientific, of course, but preliminary findings lead to indisputable facts. I straighten and look around. The stretch between here and the back fence contains various retired city service sedans, their doors being the faded emblems of fire inspector, water, and sewage, but mostly their worn out police cars, all coated with several layers of dirt, old and dented, with either flat tires or no tires at all. I step toward them. The only sound is the whistle of the wind. These cars make me sad. They were useful once, and now they're ugly and serve no purpose. When Joe and I visited Paula in the office of this place, her initial reaction upon seeing us was a glance toward a side exit of the building. It seemed insignificant at the time, but there was a furtiveness and apprehension in the slant of her eyes that caught my attention. What if it wasn't the door she was looking at, but the direction, this direction, in fact? She'd been looking toward this quadrant of the lot. Was Hector killed here at the VMF or brought here from some other location? How can I know? Returning to the beige ladder truck, I clamber up to the bed, eye the folded ladder, and study the attached metal basket that's secured to the rear. Remembering what Joe said about evidence of foul play, I scan the hinges and sides of the basket for blood, or maybe a hank of hair. There's absolutely nothing suspicious. Who are you and what the hell are you doing here? The man's growling voice comes from behind and below. I look over my shoulder and down to see an overweight, middle-aged man. Standing beside the cab of the truck, he's assumed an aggressive posture, legs firm like posts, hands on hips. His expression is suspicious and indignant. He'd be intimidating if his belly didn't hang so far over his belt. He looks like he's pregnant with twins. I notice his hat with fleece ear flaps. I bet that hat keeps his head and ears warm. Are you a security guard? I ask, remaining in the truck bed. I look after the place on weekends, he replies. I like your hat, I tell him. "'State your business,' he says, adjusting his belt beneath his big belly. "'I'm a friend of Paula's.' "'It's the only thing I can think to say. "'She said it was okay if I poke around.' "'Oh, she did, did she?' he responds. "'Let's just give her a call to confirm that.' "'He pulls his phone from his pocket. "'I climb from the truck, moving with exaggerated care "'and limping a bit in the hope that he'll realize how harmless I am. "'Is she your boss?' I ask. "'Sometimes distraction works. "'Sure, she's in charge out here,' he answers.' What kind of boss is she? Like, is she demanding, or does she micromanage? This is the VMF, he tells me, not some fancy corporation. We all got our jobs to do, and Paula does what she's paid to do. And right now, my job is to find out why a little girl is poking around the ladder trucks. He returns his attention to the phone. I sprint toward the back exit, the catch in my rib poking like a dagger. Though he's slow off the mark, he catches on quickly, and he's light on his feet for a heavy guy. In no time, he's right behind me, huffing and grunting with each step. I reach the gate and squeeze through. He's too big to get through, but he reaches out and grabs my coat. I unzip and slip out of it, then run like hell. On the way back to the hotel, I stop by the grocery store, where I buy a half bottle of wine and a plastic container of cheddar chunks. This is the same snack Beth and Tansy had that evening when I looked through Tansy's back window. It's odd how, having been almost killed by them this afternoon, I now crave this particular food and drink combination. Oh, and look, beside the checkout counter is a standing rack bedecked with ear flap hats. I buy one. Fifteen minutes later, settled in front of the television in my room at the Candle Rock Inn, I sip the wine and gnaw on the cheese. I regret the loss of my coat, but I brought my cold-weather running gear with me so I can at least run in the morning if I want to. I have another coat at the house. I'll stop by in the morning, drop Edgar off, and pick up the coat before work. I get to sleep around nine. This concludes the seventh reading from Jen Waldo's Snooping Caprock, in which Sandra, feeling vulnerable, checked into a hotel for the night and grew more curious about the disappearance of Guyman Chomiak and Vera Penny. In the next episode, she will be caught peering through Wendy's back window, and she will talk some friends from the Smoker Support Group into a nighttime excursion to the VMF, which ends in a violent encounter with Beth and Paula.